Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Assad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Dr. Maha Nassar, an associate professor of modern Middle East history and Islamic studies at the University of Arizona. Dr. Nassar specializes in Arab cultural and intellectual history with a focus on Palestinians. Like many of you, I've been following what has been happening to the Palestinians in Israel and the Gaza Strip over the past few weeks and months, and Dr. Nassar is one of the many voices I've come across. She's had a number of articles published about Palestinian history, culture, and current events in places like the Washington Post and The Forward. Her most recent book, which was published a few years ago, is called Brothers Apart, Palestinian Citizens of the Israeli and Arab World. It talks about how Palestinian intellectuals in Israel in the mid-20th century connected to global decolonization movements. I recently read the book and learned so much specifically about Palestinians living in Israel and what it's been like for them as second-class citizens for much of the last century. I asked her why she decided to write the book. As a Palestinian American, as a Muslim American, as someone who really embraced both my Palestinian identity and my Muslim identity from a very young age, I grew up learning about and reading about Palestinians pretty sort of regularly, particularly since the first Intifada, which was during my teenage years. And I get to graduate school and I'm learning, you know, even more about Palestinian history and I'm reading about Ottoman history and history during the British Mandate and history of the West Bank and so forth. And then it was ironically, uh, I was studying Hebrew at the time, and it was in Hebrew class that we read an essay written in Hebrew by a Palestinian novelist named Anton Shamas. And I had to translate it into English. And so I'm struggling through translating it. And as I, as the, as the words and the ideas are coming through, I'm really struck by the idea that he identifies as a Palestinian, but isn't recognized as such neither by other Arabs, nor by Israelis, nor by the rest of the world. And he talks about this sort of feeling of in-betweenness. And, and that was my first real engagement with thinking of deeply about who are these Palestinians. I think of myself, I had thought of myself at the time as knowing a lot about Palestinians, yet I didn't know much about them. And that's what started the journey. And then as I was embarking on that journey that started as a dissertation and ultimately turned into a book. The second sort of aha moment was that when I started on my path, the secondary literature largely talked about these Palestinian citizens of Israel vis-a-vis the Israeli state or vis-a-vis the Jewish-Israeli majority. But as I dug into the primary sources, literary works, journalistic works, etc., I found that they were really, really, really attuned to what was happening in the Arab world, among other Palestinians. And that's really where their cultural, social, political orientation was. Yes, they had to deal with the state. Yes, they had to deal with Jewish Israelis, but really their horizons were much broader than that. So that becomes really the heart of the book. And I think one of the other things that I've observed over the last few weeks is how my book, which really focuses on the decades of the 1950s and 60s, but the principles that I lay out there in terms of how Palestinians, even though they're in Israel, even though they are sequestered and in many ways um, isolated from the rest of the world, they nonetheless maintain this deep and abiding connection 
to their fellow Palestinians and to the Arab world around them. And we see that once again on display right now in these last several weeks as Palestinians, again, in Israel, and according to Israeli pundits, they've been assimilated or they've been integrated, let's say, into Israeli society. They thought, okay, we got this under control. But this younger generation now of Palestinians inside the Green Line, they don't even identify themselves as Palestinian citizens of Israel. They say we are 48 Palestinians. We are Palestinians under occupation since 1948, and we identify as Palestinians, and we wave the Palestinian flag, and we sing the Palestinian anthem. So in some ways, I think the events of the last several weeks have sort of helped me come full circle with regard to my book, which talks about this from the first decades um, since the Nakba, since 1948. At what point did the Arab world or the global community start to understand the the creativity and the um, the writings and the thought leadership that was coming out of the Palestinian community within Israel? So it's always been mixed. There was a moment in the late 1960s, so 1968, 69, 70, 71, during the height of the Palestinian revolutionary movement when Palestinians had uh, a robust PLO, when there was a lot of, kind of like the present moment in many ways, there was a kind of global sense of solidarity and support for the Palestinians and a sense that the Palestinian cause was connected to other liberationist causes. So there was a moment, it's the, the sort of last moment that I talk about in my book, where there was this kind of realization But then I think it kind of fades over the subsequent decades as we move from the 70s into the 80s and especially into the 90s. And then it kind of comes back up again in 2000 at the beginning of the Second Intifada when you had thousands and thousands of Palestinian citizens of Israel who took to the streets in solidarity and support with the Palestinians in the occupied territories. Israeli police forces killed 13 unarmed demonstrators in October of 2000. And I think in many ways that was a turning point when Palestinian citizens realized that at the end of the day, Israeli officials might talk, you know, talk a game about how we're all together and we're all a democracy and we're all equal. But when push comes to shove, their lives are considered cheap. So over the last 20 years, we've seen a kind of quiet mobilization that's been happening facilitated by the internet, facilitated by social media. And I think we're seeing that really come to the fore now. Yeah, I, I me personally, you know, I, I'm Pakistani American Muslim, and I think I did my first kind of deep dive into the quote-unquote conflict 15 or 20 years ago. Um, I read a couple books, I watched some, you know, PBS documentaries, and, you know, I read some newspaper articles or, or whatever, um, and I guess kind of formed whatever my opinion was at that time. But I have to say, in the last two or three weeks, the amount of information that I've consumed through Twitter, through documentaries on YouTube, um, even, um, you know, articles like the op-eds that you've written or other people have written, I feel has really shifted my view uh, quite a bit just in the last couple of weeks. Can you talk about that and just about how the ability for Palestinians to communicate what's going on on the ground has helped share their stories, get their voices out there? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think to answer that question fully, I think it helps us to first 
think about the American media landscape vis-a-vis coverage of Palestine and the Palestinians and to remember how censored Palestinian voices have been over these past several decades. Uh, I did a, a study last year, last summer, where I looked at the op-eds of the major, I I looked at the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, I looked at the Nation, I looked at the New Republic, um, and I looked at, uh, I did a a database search from 1970 to 2020, looking at how many op-eds and opinion pieces were written about Palestinians that like mentioned them or talked about them in some way, and then how many of them were, of those, were written by Palestinians. And the numbers are pretty appalling, frankly. Um, in the New York Times, for example, in the 1970s, it was less than 1%. By the time we get to the past decade, it was less than uh, 3%. So an increase, but not by much. So Palestinians have consistently been spoken for and spoken about, but rarely allowed to speak for themselves. Well, Katie, I, I really love this article. We'll link to it in our in our show notes. Um, can you tell why is it important that the voices be shared on these opinion pages of the New York Times and um, and uh, Washington Post, New Republic, The Nation? Why, why is it important for their voices to be out there? I think it was important, and I'll uh, and I'll, so notice the was there. Yeah. I think it was important in the seventies and eighties and nineties and even two thousands because that's where most people got their news from. Uh, you know, the internet's not that old, relatively speaking, you know, 20, 25 years old now. Um, The proliferation of information that we are now able to consume, people didn't have access to that 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. So if a Palestinian wants to get, or if the Palestinian perspective or Palestinian voice wants to get out there, they had to go through those gatekeeping mechanisms of the editors and and so forth. And even as prominent a Palestinian intellectual as Edward Said, prominent Palestinian-American intellectual, had a really hard time getting his opinion pieces and his essays into the New York Times. They largely shot him out, with the exception of one piece that they ran of his in 1999. So So that's why it was important, because that is how you got the Palestinian perspective. That is how you understood what was happening to Palestinians on the ground in an unadulterated way. I think over the last five years or so, it's become less important, frankly, that that you have Palestinians who get their voices into, say, the New York Times, to some extent. And what I mean by that is, as you just mentioned, so many people, especially I would say under the age of 15, especially under the age of 40 or 30, they're not getting their news from the New York Times anyway, by and large, or not exclusively from these mainstream or these legacy media outlets. They're getting it through Twitter, through Instagram, through Facebook, et cetera. But there is still a demographic of people, I would say sort of baby boomers, I would say um, policymakers who continue to get most of their information from mainstream media outlets. And so I think it does still, there is still merit to paying attention and trying to see or get Palestinian voices into places like the New York Times. I think it's not as important as it was before, but it still carries some weight in some circles. Yeah, I just want to share the stats because I, I, I was shocked. Less than 2% of opinion pieces over 50 years in the New York Times 
were written by Palestinians. In the Washington Post, it was just 1%. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have in the nation just 10% of 300 plus articles over the last whatever 40 or 50 years. Um, it, it just seems uh, uh, someone was asleep at the wheel. <laughs> like uh, it seems like the most basic thing to, if, especially if you're talking about hundreds of articles to try to get the perspective from, you know, the other side or, uh, you know, one of the main sides, I guess. So I actually think that there is, there was a larger dynamic at play. I don't think it was just laziness or benign neglect. I do think that there was a deep seated and deep rooted anti-Palestinian bigotry, anti-Arab bigotry and Islamophobia that was all tied together that shaped the views of the decision makers in a lot of those newsrooms. And it went, it said it, it sort of either consciously or subconsciously, essentially it was folks saying those people are inherently biased. They can't speak for themselves. There was an assumption of mediocrity. They quote unquote, don't know how to write or don't know how to write well. There was an assumption of bias that they couldn't write um, in a detached way. And there was frankly an assumption, there were assumptions about the need to always quote unquote, balance Palestinian perspectives with Israeli ones. So of the very few op-eds that Edward Said was able to get into the New York Times in the 1980s, when I would click it and open the PDF of the, because in, in the 80s, it was, you know, the, the database gives you the PDF of the, of the print edition. So you can see what it actually looked like on the, on the sheet, on the, on the page. Edward Said was never able to just write a piece about Palestinians and let it stand. It always had to be juxtaposed with somebody writing from a very vehemently pro-Israel, anti-Arab position. And that's what passed for balance at that time. Of course, the opposite wasn't true. And you had lots of columnists and others who wrote from, who talked about the Israeli perspective and gave the Israeli viewpoint without editors feeling the need to quote unquote balance that with an Arab or a Palestinian perspective. And that's part of that larger infrastructure of bigotry, frankly, um, that was also, I think, reflective of other topics as well. I don't think it was exclusive to Palestinians or Arabs or Muslims. I think if others were to do similar, similar studies covering other parts of the world or other communities of color here in the US, I imagine you would find something similar. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Dr. Nassar will tell us about her first and only trip to Palestine. This is American Muslim Project. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Dr. Maha Nassar. Dr. Nassar is a professor at the University of Arizona and focuses on Palestinian history and culture. Her most recent book is called Brothers Apart and focuses on Palestinian citizens of Israel and the Arab world. In the book, she talks about the high price that is paid for Arabic expressions of support for the Palestinians. She explained more in our conversation. There is a high price to be paid. It was high, particularly for Palestinians in Israel, given that the, the goal once Israel was recognized by the international community, and once they made the sort of reluctant decision that they would grant citizenship citizenship to the Palestinians who remained in their the sort of within the armistice lines, 
they realized that it was politically and militarily and practically unfeasible to to expel them and remove them from Israel. So what they tried to do instead was to um, was to denude Palestinians of their Palestinian identity. And so even the terminology that they use, so they call them Arab Israelis or Israeli Arabs as a kind of ethnic um, designation that was separate from or was denying the political one. So any kind of Arabic expression that was used to challenge that Zionist framing was considered subversive and it was considered dangerous. So one could use Arabic to praise the state, for example. One could use Arabic to say that, you know, we're grateful to be here. And Israel would sponsor poetry contests to try to rival the nationalist ones. Uh, they would they would sponsor poetry festivals to try to like see who could best uh, <laughs> ingratiate themselves to the state, I guess, <laughs> and win prizes accordingly. But that poetry was always bad poetry. Like nobody, <laughs> oh, where can I find some of this poetry? Nobody remembers it. It doesn't get really you know published or recognized in any way. So, so it was, it wasn't so much the language, it wasn't so much Arabic itself, but what the Arabic was doing that was seen as dangerous. Um, And I feel like that's still happening today. Is that right? Yes. So the way that, um, the way that Israel deals with its Palestinian population is by essentially segregating them from the Jewish-Israeli population. So most of them live in predominantly Palestinian um, towns and villages, even the so-called mixed cities. You have segregated neighborhoods and you have Palestinian ghettos. And then Palestinian school children uh, are enrolled in what's called the Arab school system. There's a kind of de facto segregated school system in Israel as well. And the curriculum of that Arab school system emphasizes Jewish uh, heritage and civilization and so forth. And very little attention is paid to Arab civilization, Islamic civilization, history, any of that. It's given very short shrift. So on the one hand, Israel, Israelis would say, look, we're you know, helping our Arab Israeli citizens maintain their connection to their culture. But on the other hand, it's done in a way that would shore them of that sense of pride and identity with their Palestinianness, Arabness, etc. Uh, this may be a naive question, but is it akin to Jim Crow era, era laws in, in the States? So a lot of people uh, have looked into that. Yes and no is what I would say. So you don't have the kind of formal in-your-face segregation of like, you know, you're not going to find signs that say, Jewish water fountains or Arab water fountains, for example, right? And the divisions aren't racially based in the way that race was constructed in the U.S. So race is a, is a slippery slope that, um, you know, race, as we all know, is socially constructed and it tends to be socially specific to the, to the society that it's constructed in. So race isn't constructed in the same way uh, as it is in the U.S. Having said that, however... It, it's very clear from very early on that Palestinian citizens of Israel, the more conscientious, politically conscious ones, saw parallels between their own condition 
and that of particularly Black Americans in the Jim Crow South. So there's an, I talk about in an article that I can send you, um, there is an essay that Mahmoud Darwish wrote in 1966, where he talks about how he read James Baldwin's Nobody Knows My Name. And he writes about how he felt like James Baldwin was talking to me personally, wow. even though he understands that his, his racial features aren't as immediately noticeable. So that in the essay, Darwish does a really, I think, sophisticated analysis of talking about both the similarities as well as the differences between Palestinians and Israel in the 60s and then Black Americans at that time as well. So it's complicated. And, yeah. uh, as everything is with this. I don't want to make a facile comparison, but there yeah. are definitely parallels that one can draw, not only with 1960s Jim Crow, but even today. Yeah, definitely. I would love to read that. And um, we can share that with our listeners as well. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to know um, how important the Black Lives Matter movement has been in the past year or two getting the word out about um, the Palestinian cause. I think it's been incredibly important in multiple ways. One is that I think the Black Lives Matter movement, given that many of its core leaders come out of a Black internationalist tradition, recognized early on, even back in 2014 and 2015, you had members of the earliest Black Lives Matter leaders, uh, leadership going to Palestine on fact-finding missions, going particularly to the occupied territory. I, I had no clue. What? Yeah. And, uh, and members of the Dream Defenders and others went on uh, fact-finding missions in 2015 in particular and developed this sense of, wow, these things really are connected, not just in the ways in which you know, race or superiority and inferiority are constructed, but also in terms of the material conditions on the ground, in terms of the ways in which security and defense companies in the U.S. and Israel uh, feed off of one another and both are predicated upon the, um, the suppression of these political movements that are emerging. A number of the police forces in Ferguson and in Missouri and in St. Louis during the Ferguson uprisings in 2014 had gone on junkets and trainings in Israel. There's a whole kind of network of uh, American police forces going to Israel for training. So that an analytic was developed, I would say, even five, six, seven years ago. And it's been developing um, kind of within movement spaces in the U.S. since then. And so we've seen it take a rise even more so in the last year. At the same time, you see Palestinian organizers in the U.S., and in Palestine, and frankly, in other parts of the world as well, recognizing and understanding that the kinds of structural oppression that Palestinians are facing can't just be talked about in terms of competing nationalisms, can't, and certainly can't be talked about in terms of competing religious claims. Okay, but, can you explain that? I don't think I follow. So for a long time, we were told, all of us were told in the U.S. and elsewhere that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is about um, Israelis and Palestinians each have national claims on the same land. And so they're fighting over their competing national claims. 
Some have tried to pin it as a religious, you know, war or battle between Jews and Muslims and Christians. That never, that never got a lot of traction, frankly, and, and is pretty facile as well. With the national, the idea that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a national struggle does carry a lot of, has had a lot of traction over the years and over the decades, in part because the Palestinian liberation movement in the 20th century positioned itself as a national liberation movement. And the solutions that have been bandied about for the last 30, 40 years have been statist solutions, two-state solution, so forth. But over the last five to 10 years, increasingly Palestinians have been saying, what we really should do is go back to what we originally conceptualized our struggle as. We originally conceptualized our struggle as an anti-colonial struggle, akin to the other kinds of anti-colonial struggles that were happening elsewhere in the world in the early mid 20th century. And that allows us to have a more internationalist and a more intersectional approach to how we think about the conditions that Palestinians are facing. And it allows us to draw connections to various kinds of oppression that other people, other minoritized groups and other other oppressed groups are facing as well. So black that's and so that's where the Palestinian attention to Black Lives Matter also comes in. So if you go to Palestine right now, you'll see murals in Ramallah, in Gaza, and elsewhere, uh, beautiful murals of George Floyd, because the protests that came out of uh, in the wake of George Floyd's murder last year was a moment for Palestinians both to say we identify with George Floyd and we identify with what it means to be, uh, to face state discrimination, institutional violence, structural oppression, et cetera. It was also a learning moment for Palestinians. There were some more quiet conversations happening within Palestinian society around discussions of anti-Blackness and how Palestinians um, interact with and talk about the Afro-Palestinians who are themselves part of Palestinian society, but who have ancestry that goes back to um, various parts of Africa. So, so that's all happening, I would say, at a conceptual level and at a political awareness level. And then there's an added level, which is the social media level. So the other piece to this is that the Black Lives Matter movement and the BLM movement that emerges last year in the wake of George Floyd's murder also showed the whole world, including Palestinians, the power of organizing online, the power of bringing lots of people to the street, and then both the potential, but also the risks for how to translate that into actual real change on the ground. So we saw a year ago last summer, um, you know, huge protests around the world calling for changes in policing, calling for changes in Sort of how societies and and uh, law and order and surveillance and all those things are structured. A year later, the results have been mixed. I think we can say. Yeah. So, so Palestinians at this moment are looking at both the potentials but also the risks in terms of what does it mean to organize transnationally and globally around a cause. Um, 
I'm interested. The first time that you went to um, Palestine, it was facilitated by your cousin. Yes. Um, can you talk about that and, and what your first trip was like? Sure. Uh, so it wasn't until 2007, one of the vagaries of being the daughter of Palestinian refugees is that Palestinian refugees, by and large, aren't allowed to go home uh, unless they have a U.S. or other sort of passport that will allow them to do so. So I went in 2007. I went with my husband and my cousin. Um, my husband is a uh, white Muslim, Anglo-white Muslim. And my cousin <laughs> looks ethnically ambiguous, shall we say. And here <laughs> I am looking very Muslim and my hijab and, and the whole thing. So the plane lands at the airport and we're walking off the jetway into the airport. And two steps, literally two steps into the airport, an Israeli guard, uh, military guard, sees me and pulls me to the side. Now, my husband and my, and my cousin were walking ahead of me. And he didn't pull them over. He pulled me, though. <laughs> Fortunately, very quickly, they turned around and, and doubled back to join me. And the first thing he asks me in Hebrew is, where's my West Bank ID? And I knew enough Hebrew to know what he was asking, but I didn't want to uh, let him know that I knew. <laughs> so I told him he had to speak English to me. And I pulled out my American passport. And he saw that it was an American passport. And so he let me continue to the passport control where we were then detained for a couple of hours, which is oh. par for the course, frankly, for Palestinians who are, um, who travel there. That, that, even, on, even on an American passport, even though I was born in the U S um, and the reason they were asking for my West bank ID is because they want to make sure that Palestinians from the West bank um, don't step foot into Israel. Um, the, that they're not supposed to fly into the airport. They're supposed to cross the bridge from Jordan, um, and so forth. So, so that was my first arrival, and I had known to expect that. People had told me what to what to look for. But I, we spent most of the time in the Palestinian areas inside 1948, so inside Israel. So we stayed in Haifa, and we stayed in Nazareth, and we stayed also we also stayed in East Jerusalem. So we stayed in mostly the Palestinian areas, so to speak. And frankly, it felt like Palestine. Like it felt like similarly to how it felt when I had traveled to Jordan before. People spoke Arabic. The, the vibe was very sort of Arab, I guess. Um, but when I went to Tel Aviv, I conducted an interview in Tel Aviv and we, I went for a day. I felt really uncomfortable. Like what I felt really out of place. People were staring at me. Uh, I was stopped every couple of blocks and asked to show my ID by wow. my officers. Like, it was really icky, <laughs> frankly. So I got out of there ASAP. Um, and so, so coming away from it, what I realized was that the power, because most of my research, most of the, my time there was interviewing Palestinian citizens of Israel, intellectuals and others, but I also spent time in cafes and in taxis and other things, interacting with a lot of kind of ordinary Palestinians. And so I came away from that trip realizing that the map that you see of Israel, minus the West Bank and Gaza Strip, right? Because that's occupied territory, that's not part of Israel. But even if you were to look at so-called Israel proper, if you were to look at the 1948 areas um, that we today call Israel, uh, that's not all Israel. There's still Palestinians and Palestinian culture and Palestinian society are still alive and well 
in the areas where they live. Um, and that's what gives Israelis a lot of anxiety, frankly. Uh, and a lot of, and part of what we've seen coming out of the last couple of weeks is that anxiety coming to the surface. Uh, you, you write in, in the acknowledgments of the book to your kids, you have two kids, that I hope that they see the day when everyone in the Holy Land and the entire world lives in peace as equals. Is that the ultimate? I mean, uh, clearly that's the ultimate goal, but is that, how do you see this kind of ending? I think that's the only way it can end. I mean, that or or annihilation. There, There's no third way. It's either coexistence on equal footing or it's mutual destruction. So when I say that, I, I don't say, I don't mean to sound... Uh, hopeless. I actually say that with a great deal of hope, particularly in this in this moment, because I think more and more Israelis, and I think especially more and more supporters of Israel in the U.S., whether Jewish or otherwise, have come to that realization or are coming to that realization. Because for Palestinians, it was never about it, for Palestinians. The idea of Jews living in Palestine is part of our history. I'm writing a book currently about the history of the Palestinian people. And Jews have always had a presence in Palestine. It was Omar al Khattab who invited Jews back to Jerusalem after the Romans had kicked them out. So it's not about living there. It's not about the idea that it's somehow difficult for us to live together. We've always lived together until the 20th century. We lived together. The problem comes when one group tries to dominate and uh, take over and expel the other groups that have been living there. Palestinians are well aware of that and want everyone to be able to live together. I think a lot of Palestinians see our history as as caretakers of the Holy Land and of the Holy Land for Muslims, Christians, and Jews. So that's the I, I see that as the only as the only solution. Um, Dr. Massar, thank you so much for joining American Muslim Project. This has been a really interesting um, and enlightening enlightening conversation. Thank you for having me. My conversation with Dr. Maha Nassar was recorded in May of 2021. We'll have links to her book and everything else that we talked about in the show notes. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafaelion Media. Today's show was produced and edited by Mark Inato, Lindsay Gamble, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our theme. You can find out more at AmericanMuslimProject.com. Yeah.